0: This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. I'd like to welcome and thank you for joining me for the first episode of the Best Friends Podcast. My name is John Dunn. If you missed episode zero, where we explained what this is all about, I'd like to encourage you to check it out. It's under five minutes, but it's a good primer. I think it's worth your time. You can find it at bestfriends.org podcast. That's where you'll find all of the links and information from each episode. And we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast. Information on how to do that. Also at bestfriends.org podcast. Now, there are an endless amount of ways we could have gone with the first episode, but to us, only one made sense. And that is a conversation with best friend's CEO, Julie Castle. I know this is not an ideal time for you to take time out of your schedule. Uh, I don't know if you know this. We are in the middle of a global pandemic.
1: We are in the middle of a huge shitstorm for sure. I think the earth has said, look, people, you can't figure this out. So I'm going to figure it out for you. I mean, I actually really believe that the earth is hitting the pause button right now. I really do. I think it's, it is on so many levels that I think it's going to reset the way society operates. I think it's going to reset the way we do things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And animal welfare and beyond, and I'm excited to talk uh, all about that. You mentioned storms, uh, I have to tell you, there is a big thunderstorm rolling through West Michigan, where I live. And you may hear thunder, or it might be my stomach. One hour or the other, and I'm <laughs> going to let you and the listener decide. So Julie Castle, the CEO of Best Friends Animal Society, as you say, this is such a huge moment in history, this global pandemic. When did you realize that this is what it is or was going to be what it is? And what were your first steps? What did you do?
1: Well, I think I really it dawned on me that this is a really, really big deal when I started watching international news and reading international news. I just ditched all the you know national news, and I went right to Italy. And I just thought this thing is spreading so quickly in that country; it's coming. And that was a huge red flag for me. And I immediately pulled together, you know, our senior leadership team and said, I think I said these exact words. This is going to be <clears throat> unlike anything we've seen in our lifetimes. You can take <clears throat> the Vietnam War, Korea, World War I, and World War II, and this is going to be bigger than all of them. Not in terms of a human death toll at that point, just more of how. Incredibly disruptive, it was going to be not just for this country but the entire world. And then I think what sealed the deal for me was when the NBA shut down. And I knew at that point, you know, either these guys know something we don't, like they have information that we don't have, or more information. Because I know that that league cares about its fans, but they also have million-dollar assets running around the court. And there's no way they're going to put those guys at risk. And that's when that evening, I just started emailing tons of people saying, we got to pull the plug on this. We got to pull the plug on that. And that's when the domino effect for me started.
0: It's funny you mentioned basketball. I remember watching CNN when they announced March Madness. Uh, the NCAA basketball tournament. They had not canceled the season. What they initially said they were going to do was play without fans. And my first thought was, that's going to be weird. (laughs) Like just all this squeaking and no cheering. (laughs) You're going to hear eight guys on the sideline cheering for the other guys on the court.
1: Totally. I know. Squeaking and swearing. I think that's all you'd hear. But I think, I think I look back and that was what now four weeks ago or something. Seems like a lifetime, but yeah. It does. And I, I can remember the first decision point that we had was to cancel our annual all staff gathering where we pull, you know, culture is really important to me. And we pull together our staff once a year because we have a lot of remote staff already, like more than half of our staff work remotely. And, the, and it's hard to connect remotely, I think, as everyone's discovering now. And so it's a big piece of our culture. And it was a really tough decision. But after that decision, the things just started moving so quickly that other decisions became much, much easier. Like it was like, yep, we're canceling that, we're canceling this. Like we just went down the checklist and at least in my head, none of it was a hard decision.
0: They may not be hard decisions from, you know, a staff perspective, but you know, these are things like you say, all staff week is important to the organization. It's important to the staff, but external events, strut your mutt, the conference, you know, these things that uh, are really just the banner events for best friends every year, Everybody comes together. It's this moment for the movement. I mean, it is really defines our year. I mean, that's you announced no kill 2025 at the 2016 conference. So these are big deals that aren't just this is what we have to do. Sure, it's what we have to do, but the implications of that, that's wild.
1: So wild, so wild. And you know, I think it's it's happening to every industry. It's not just us, it's you know every, you know, the NBA, I mentioned Major League Baseball, movie theaters, like, I think things are going to change, like we have never imagined, we're going to see change on such a dramatic level. And I think it was heart wrenching to think about all those things that we were going to be canceling, because, like, Strut Your Mutt, for example, provides millions of dollars every year to our network partners like for some of them, it's our biggest fundraiser of the year. And um, shadow. Hold on. It
0: wouldn't be a best friends or any animal welfare interview without a barking dog or a yelling cat or whatever (laughs) your choice. I mean, canceling those events, a big deal, but it changes us. And I think that's part of these moments in history whatever they may be it forces that innovation and these events i mean strut your mutt it just it exists it still exists whatever form that may be right it's that disruption and it's how we react to them that makes the difference
1: yeah i mean i think it's going to be different but it won't be gone and i but i do think some stuff will be gone and maybe that's not such a bad thing and I really feel like when it we, and I've mentioned this before, you know, I'm a history major, and you look back at times in history that are defining moments for the human race, and this is one of those, for sure. And the way that we behave during this moment is going to be m- remembered for not just generations, but hundreds of years from now. And I think that to to own that and recognize that in the moment is that is going to help everyone sort of get past this easier and more quickly, I think. But I have this theory in my head that when these things happen, change comes about very rapidly that would have taken three, four decades to change. But because we have no choice and necessity is the mother of invention, this is the moment to make sweeping change in a way that we never, ever thought we could. And so for me, while part of it is, there's a mourning to it. There is a lot, a sense of loss to it. And I've said to people, I've said to the staff, said to other movement leaders, like we're going through the seven stages of grief every day, sometimes multiple times a day. And some of it's over things that we love and we've held on to. But I think as we come out the other side, things are going to be changed permanently, and it's going to be good. It's not all going to be good, but I think we're going to see innovation and change in a way that is just going to blow our minds. Ultimately, what this is all about, it's just speeding up the inevitable. Which
0: that's a silver lining, if there ever was one, when it may feel very dark, and we may not be able to see that yet, a lot of us, But I think that's what differentiates the average Joe like me from leadership, people who are able to look into the future, and we might as well start there. I keep hearing you talk in Best Friends meetings about the future of animal welfare, what this means, uh, changing the face of what we do. Uh, I think that's true in a lot of different ways but can you define maybe what you mean by that? Yeah.
1: And first of all, John, you are not <laughs> the average Joe at all. I think you're one of those visionaries that's able to look into the future and really help craft that. And that's one of the things I enjoy so much about you.
0: I'm glad this is recorded.
1: <laughs> and I have so many stories about that. But, you know, I think if you look at the history of animal welfare It's something that started 150 years ago, you know, and we all know that it started in New York City and there was a public outcry because there were tons of stray dogs running around the streets of New York. And the public said, hey, you know, we're concerned about rabies and legitimately so. So they asked the city to do something about it. And the city's response was to put a bounty on all these dogs, hire a bunch of bounty hunters, round them up them in a cage and dunk them in the east river and the public went crazy and so the ultimate solution from that was to basically start building shelters and essentially that was you know in the 1800s and what ended up happening was the same thing except for behind closed doors and this went on for decade after decade after decade until the really 1980s when Rich Avanzino in San Francisco and the founders at Best Friends said, enough, like there's got to be a better way for us to treat our companion animals and these creatures that bring us so much joy and that we love so much. And so from that period of time to basically March 1st was incremental change. It was slow going, things were happening. You know, We've seen a big amount of change in animal welfare over the past decade. Like that's been the greatest amount of change. And it's been really cool to see that happen. And you can feel it. You can feel that we're sort of at this tipping point, but boy, I'm telling you from 1984 to 2010, pretty slow incremental change from 2010 to now a decent amount of rapid change, but I'm telling you from now to the future, it's gonna be on hyperdrive. Because one of the things that we've been talking about internally for a very long time is what would a shelterless future look like? What would this country look like without brick and mortar shelters? And it's, a, it's been a kind of a wild concept for some people to wrap their heads around because of course, we're gonna still need you know, help in the field. Of course, we're still gonna need emergency services. But do we really have to spend a $26 million municipal bond on a new facility that's out by the dump that's designed by the same guy that designed the prison? No. And I think that is the same architect that designed the municipal prison in a lot of cases is the same one that designs the animal shelters. And I think it that's so telling to me. It's like, if our headspace is that way in a municipal manner we've there we've got issues in how we think about our companion animals and i think that while a lot of that has changed over the past decade what does a shelterless future look like and to me that is so cool to think about it's virtual it's digital it's about our community stepping up and really taking ownership of these sentient beings that bring us so much joy And there are so many different layers to that. And I think we're seeing that now. Just, I really believe that the biggest thing that's going to come out of this is people are digging deeper into their local community. And you're seeing a lot of stuff that's happening on a very grassroots level, door-to-door campaigns, you know, meeting a neighbor that you never thought you'd meet before or wanted to meet before, suddenly you kind of feel dependent on them. Because the shit's going down, and you're gonna get help from that person that lives right next door to you. And in a, in a weird way, this is gonna bring us so much closer together as a community, as a people, as a society. It's really cool time, but also very heartbreaking and scary.
0: Yeah, I, that concept of the the neighbor that we have lost, those things exist. Certainly, there are neighborhoods. And moms and dads know each other and kids play together. But my street, as an example, I really don't know anybody on my street. And who's to blame for that? Absolutely me. Uh, Technology, political divides, you know, there are many things on a sociological level that we could probably talk about, but we are, we're just going to have to do that. This isn't the end of the world, but it is the kind of scenario where without each other's help, I don't know how we get through this. And we haven't even really started.
1: I I totally agree with that. And I mean, the thing is, is that this is going to reveal so much about human nature. And I think, like I said, it's these defining moments that push the human race forward. And I think that we're in one of those moments where you really are going to start seeing those folks who rise to the top and leaders in your community that you never imagined or thought of as a leader are stepping up to become those leaders. It's not necessarily the elected officials. It's not necessarily, you know, the people that had the power in terms of money or business. It's your local neighbor down the street who is delivering bread to everyone. It's that person that's posting the kindness card on your door in your mailbox saying, how can I help you today? It's going to change our society. And in a way, it's sort of stripped away our a lot of the BS that we've built up around us, you know, we've sort of buffered ourselves in this cocoon of technology and social media and isolation. We are being absolutely forced to not do that anymore. And I think it's a fascinating study in sociology. And if you read about communities, and if you've studied sociology, you know that there are Studies out there about communities where you know your neighbor, where your neighborhoods know each other, crime is lower, death rates are lower, education is higher, and humans need each other. And humans need each other to strengthen the fabric of society. And part of that means helping each other out during a crisis, part of that means helping each other's animals out in a crisis. So it isn't just my animal, my neighbor feels responsible for Shadow and Stanley as well. And that I know that if I go to the hospital, I'm one text or phone call away from my neighbor who can say, sure, I'll take care of these guys for you, no problem. That is what we're going to start seeing, I think, on a mass scale.
0: That comes then back to people in animal welfare, people in the world, people we need to reach with the idea that people are inherently good. And what a great example of that, you know, with people stepping up to foster as this thing started to take off. Hey, we need help, and it was like the whole country was there.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's sort of it's a it defines the human spirit. And the net effect of that is just a belief that we're on the right track that humans are, 99% of the human race is good and decent. I had a meeting before this whole thing blew up with a guy who I've heard the same before, but it was so profound and it feels even more profound now. He said, I, in our company, we want to give people the opportunity to do the right thing. And if you give people the opportunity to do the right thing, they typically will. And I think that's such a great tenant to live by. And right now, we don't have a choice. Like we are reliant on people to do the right thing. And so it's so true. And I believe the fostering effort is the community coming together and saying this whole thing is happening around me. I can't control it. I don't know where it's going to lead next, but what I can control is helping to save this life. And so I'm going to take this life into my home and care for it because I know that I'm gonna get way more out of that relationship than the animal's gonna get out of that relationship. And I've heard that from so many people. And it's so true, like you're seeing all of these first time foster homes and first time adopters just say, why didn't I do this 20 years ago? And I think it's really opening up a whole new avenue of strengthening that relationship between the human animal bond in a way that nothing else we could have done, no marketing promotion would have ever pushed it this quickly, this forward, this innovative. Like it is forcing people to dig deep and go really deep inside themselves and figure out hey, I, I don't really have a choice. And I do have to create a situation where I just need to figure it out. I used to have this boss that would tell me. I'd call him up with problems, and I'd say, "Hey, you know, I've got this problem." He's like, "Julie, you are a smart girl. All I'm going to say to you is, when in doubt, figure it out." And that's kind of what we're dealing with right now. No, he would not offer any suggestions, solutions. He just turned me loose and say, "When in doubt, figure it out." So. I feel like I got programmed at a young age to just really be, this is a bootstraps moment. Like we're all up from the bootstraps, scrabbling around, trying to figure out what the next day is going to bring. And I'll be damned if some really cool stuff is coming out of this.
0: Let's just circle back to the shelter of the future concept and what that may mean. Obviously we don't know, but in the kind of vision bored, if you will, whatever those discussions have been like uh, with you and other people around the movement, what has a shelter of the future look like in a way that you may see that coming true? Or just what do you see potentially on the horizon?
1: You know, I have to be honest with you and say, I feel like in a way, the whole brick and mortar concept of a shelter has always been a gigantic head scratcher for me. Even when I was a little kid growing up and northern Utah, right outside of Salt Lake City. And we would go to the local pound, it was called. And of course, it was by the city dump. And it was, you know, a scroungy, beat up, old, messy building, not very inviting. I think everyone knows what the picture of that is. But even back then, I can remember thinking, wow, this is you know, you'd go out to the local Kmart and then you'd go down to the Pound. And <clears throat> it was a very bizarre notion for me, even at that age, to think, why? Like, what is this? Why are we doing this to these animals? And it wasn't so much a a thought or a notion in my head about animal control or the people there, any of that. It was more about the whole concept of it because it just feels really out of touch. It feels out of step. It feels super antiquated. I think we can do better than that. We owe our animal friends better. But I I could see a day where most of our adoptions are virtual. I could see a day where we're starting to see the telemedicine thing happen. Best friends had the vision to partner with a, a company during Harvey. where we developed a a similar app for veterinarians called the best friends vet access. And now that's just really taking off. And I think it's going to change that industry. I think that's going to be a big part of that future. I could see us using similar apps for, you know, fostering. We've started develop uh, because we've had to like a do it yourself kit. That's a series of things called kitten minutes where it's a 10 part series of how to foster kittens. And I think it's, it's so well done and it's so easy to follow that I I feel like in the past and listen, this is about best friends too, where I think we get into this feeling like, Hey, only we can do this. Only we can foster kittens and we need to go through hours of training and hours of blah, blah, blah to give people a fuzzy little kitten. That's the kind of stuff where it's like, we really don't. We give them these kitten minutes, we give them the kittens, we give them what they need. And I think people will do the right thing. And this is the, I think it's going to change the face of fostering, adoption. It's going to change veterinary medicine. It's going to change the way we think about animal sheltering. I think it's just going to turn the whole thing on on its head. And it needs to be like it is a right now we're thinking of it very much like a retail brick and mortar store. And I think we just need to think about it entirely differently.
0: People will sometimes hear best friends, big organizations talk these, you know, kind of big vision things and say, easy for you. You've got money. You've got time. I can't do that. I'm over here and I'm bootstrapping it. And I am doing the best I can to survive every day. But again, we're forced to do this. We're all in this. And whatever you're doing, wherever you live, the size of your organization, whatever you're doing to adapt and survive, that is a lesson we can all learn from. I'm going to talk in a big way here. and I'm going to say that this podcast is playing a role, but whether it's the podcast or any discussion platform that we have, we have to talk to each other. And that talking and learning is really what's going to get us through this. And if you've got a good idea, we want to hear it. And if we've got a good idea, we'll tell you.
1: Yeah, it's not just our industry, but we're seeing this happen across the globe where people are really digging deep to help each other out. And frenemies or competitors in in different spaces and industry are coming together like never before. And the same thing's happening with us. And I think it's a beautiful moment. I really do. I mean, we have more in common than not. Most of the people that choose to be in animal control, animal welfare, animal rights, whatever name you want to put on it, are really incredibly good people. And they are trying to do the right thing. And I think that what we've seen out of this is a collective voice almost. And you've seen different parts of our industry step up and and lead segments of that and hats off to the ASPCA for immediately coming out with a 5 million dollar grant for a lot of these small shelters small humane societies rescue groups hats off to them hats off to HSUS for all the legislative initiatives that they're partnering with us and others on hats off to AWA for basically pulling together a group of animal welfare leaders from across all sections and sending out a daily newsletter. That's not an easy thing to do. And we're just seeing it again and again. And I think again, it's together we can do more and it is the best of us is showing right now. And that is really incredible. Like I've never seen before in this movement. And I think, it speaks a lot to the character of everybody who's involved in animal welfare right now.
0: The economy is, I think, I think going to be the struggle. It is hands down and it's not going away. It's not like a pandemic. We can't flatten that curve. I mean, someday, uh, but how, who knows how long? We've got more people unemployed today, I think I saw, than the Great Depression. That has impact. You mentioned millions of dollars, ASPCA, other organizations, but we don't have an endless supply of $5 million. So what do you see economically that may impact us? Do we know yet? Are there plans in place? Like, How do we feel like we're going to be able to adjust to this? I hate to say it, but what is probably a dwindling supply of money available for us to to save lives?
1: Yeah. I mean, I've been... Uh, watching this since I I mentioned earlier, since Italy, and when Italy was sort of really behind China, but it spread so quickly there. And I just thought, wow, we are in big trouble. The virus is very scary, for sure. It's I think there's a lot about it that we don't understand. There's a lot about the pathogen that we don't understand. The thing that really scares me, though, is the economy. And I feel like we're headed for a worse situation than the Great Depression. And I hate to be so raw about it, but I think that is a reality, that is a potential reality on the horizon. And as scary as that sounds, sometimes you do better with less than you do when you have everything at your disposal. When I was in college, I was sent by my university to set up an exchange program in the former Soviet Union. For a year, and they sent me to Minsk, Belarus. And if you haven't been there, um, it's a. It was flattened during World War II, and so it's an entirely modern city, and it is all cinder block, basically cinder block buildings. It was super depressing that city itself, on a lot of levels, but. The interesting thing was the survival mechanism of those people like they are mentally tough because what we're going through right now, shortage of toilet paper, shortage of food. That was what I encountered every single day. You would go to the grocery. It wasn't even a grocery store. You'd go to a shop and you had no idea what was going to be on the shelf that day. And you just bought whatever you could get. Or you'd see a line and you'd go stand in it because you knew, there might be something good at the end of the line. <laughs> and um, so they were teasing me about, hey, Julie, we're mocking you Americans because you're worried about toilet paper. Like of all the stuff to be worried about, toilet paper isn't one of them. And I thought that was, <laughs> that was, it was funny, but it was a, it it puts things in perspective. Like the human spirit is strong. We are innovative. We have come so far in technology. We've come so far in medicine, we've come so far in economics. We are a global economy like we've never been before. So to compare it to the Great Depression is maybe a little bit unfair. We are gonna come out on the other side of this. We may not be as financially strong, but we're gonna be smarter. And I think that we will rebound relatively quickly because of all that stuff, because the human race has advanced. And I think sometimes you can do more with less. And so money isn't always everything. Sure, it is the foundation of how this, what drives this world. But at the same time, I think that that is, that is where some of the greatest innovations have come from. And so I think at this period in our history, nobody knows what the other side's going to look like. And I think the worst thing that we can do right now is despair and worry about that because we have no control over it and we just have to let it run over us. We have to let it wash over us and focus on what we can control. And what we can control right now are the animals in our care, the animals that need our care and the staff in our care. And that should be our focus right now as a movement.
0: So to bring that back to what that means for for the animal welfare world is we can talk about the shelter of the future and we're not going to be building facilities, but it still takes money. We still have to care for animals as part of that process of life saving, even if it is leaner than it was before. So again, do we have a plan? Do we have any ideas? What do you think is going to, again, very early days, but are there things that you're thinking about that might help us and everybody else survive?
1: Well, I think this is one of the things that I hear about from almost everybody I meet in this movement and people outside of this movement, you know, people that we've hired from the Red Cross or the Nature Conservancy, those people all say the same thing to me, which is, how the heck did you guys build this place in the middle of nowhere, Utah? And you know how we built this place in the middle of nowhere, Utah? It was built on relationships. It was built on storytelling. It was built on hope. It was built on sharing kindness and it was built on relationships. And what I mean by that is that we still have founders calling people who are giving us $25. They are reaching, they're not reaching out to the people who are giving us $5,000. We do do that, but they are reaching out to those people who are giving $25. Cause guess what? They matter. And that is a relationship that you want to maintain and build. And I think if I had advice to any rescue group, shelter, humane society, now is the time more than ever to call your donors, call your supporters, let them know you need help because they know that. They're waiting for you to ask. They don't know how to help. Maybe some of them can't foster, but if you give them that pathway to help, they will be there for you but it's also a time to not just run and gun. You know, you don't wanna, that's a basketball term by the way. You don't wanna just call them up, ask for money and then never reach out to them again. It's a relationship. You have to cultivate that. And I think now it's gonna be more important than ever. And those donors are in it with you for the long haul. Even though everybody's money pot is gonna get smaller, they're still going to give. People are still going to give money. And if they can't give money, they're going to give their time. And if they can't give their time or their money, they're going to give whatever they have because people care about animals.
0: What I find remarkable about the founders who call the people who gave $25, it's not to get another $25. It's just legitimately a thank you. And they talk about their animals and they get to know each other. And it, you sit in a lunchroom at Best Friends, the sanctuary in Southern Utah, and somebody will come in and say, oh, Gabriel, you called me six months ago. And he'll say, yeah, how is uh, your dog Fido? And they're just blown away that he remembered. Like that is a genuine relationship connection that is uh, just really something special. But I, OK, so I want to shift to you here uh, how you feel right now. First of all, just a quick yes or no. Are you scared? Can it
1: be yes and no?
0: (laughs) Sure. And that's fine. So what do you, so you get up in the morning, you look in the mirror and you have to get up and lead meetings with people at best friends and talk to people at other organizations and steer, you know, this, all of these people and organizations through this. What do you say to yourself? Is there like a, you know... I want to know how you are are managing these fears. How are you getting through this?
1: So I think I'm going to be honest and vulnerable right now. Yes, I am scared, but no, I'm not scared. Every morning I get up and I go on a walk. And fortunately, I have the incredible, incredible distinction of living here in the canyon. And so I walk along the canyon rim and I always, it, it it really elevates my thinking in a way that nothing else does. Because it does make me realize how small we are in this big universe. Like this is just a moment in time in a much bigger play. So it does make me think, okay, this puts everything in perspective, but it also makes me think, that the power of one individual can change a lot. And the more that I can inspire individuals that either work for me or that work with me or who are donors or volunteers, if I can inspire that one person to do an act of kindness right now, to save a life, to maybe give to an organization that desperately needs it right now, because there are rescue groups and humane societies that are, probably pretty slim right now. If I can inspire somebody to do that, not that my day's work is done, but that's a huge success for me right now. I'm scared because I'm concerned that this is going to last for a long time. And it. I keep saying to people that this is a marathon and that we need to pace ourselves. And I'm concerned about the fabric of society and the wear and tear it's gonna take on us through this time. I have a lot of confidence in the human spirit, but I am concerned about, this is not gonna last for another month. It's not gonna last for another two months. It's not gonna last for another three months. And I think the more we can mentally prepare for that and recognize that every day we need to search for those opportunities. We need to search for that silver lining. We need to know that it might be us It might be you, the listener, who is that person that's going to inspire somebody, and you don't even know that, but it is your duty to be that person. You have to have your best game right now. You have to wake up every morning with a clear head. You have to be absolutely at your best during this time because there is not going to be another time in the history of your lifetime or at least in humankind that we've experienced where there is gonna be so much demand on you to be that just incredibly best version of you that you can find. And I think it's gonna require everybody digging deep every single day. And that that's gonna be a hard thing to manage and maintain. I, I'm most afraid of that. I'm most afraid of the human spirit crumbling along the way and in different forms and it making it that much harder for us to get through this. We have to stick together. And that's why the neighbor-to-neighbor thing is so important.
0: Yeah, and that human connectedness, even within an organization, is so important. We use Facebook Workplace uh, at Best Friends, uh, which offers the opportunity to do live. It's live video, which you can do, I guess, on regular Facebook. And you've made it a priority every day to hold one of those, you know, organization wide every day at 3 p.m. Eastern. Julie or somebody is going to be there giving an update on what's happening. And even if there isn't a big update, what I think is so powerful is having that moment. It's a break in the day, but it is that connectedness, particularly for those who find themselves working at home, that isolation, whatever it is we can do to have that. It is that feeling of togetherness. We are in it together. And I just think it's so it's so important. And it doesn't matter what organization, where you live, what you do. Again, even if it's your family, you have to stay in touch with people. It's the only way, I think, to get through it.
1: It is. It is. I mean, and I, I, I say that during this time, and this is going to sound, I don't want this to sound twee because I'm dead serious about this. But during this time, the only thing that's going to get us through this is kindness. And it isn't just kindness to our fellow human beings. It's kindness to the animals around us. It's kindness to, you know, kindness is not a commodity. This is something that everybody has the capacity to give. Everybody has the capacity to be kind right now. And you need to be more kind than you've ever been in your entire life. Look, when you get to the other side of this, you're going to have less you're going to have less money, you're going to pre- have less assets, everybody is. Not just it everybody is in this together. And the kinder we are and the more acts of kindness that we share, that is going to be the thing that really gets us through. Bottom line, sure the economy's scary. I don't know what it's going to look like. Sure, you know, everybody's worried about donations or their organization. Sure everybody's worried about What happens when people stop fostering? Is there going to be a flood of animals that hit the shelter? You know, any numerous things people are going to be worried about. I'm most worried about the human spirit and people hitting their breaking point. And we need to make sure that we are there for people if that happens. And that is why this fabric is so important. And that's why it's so important that people practice self-care. Take that daily meditative walk. Take a day off the world is not going to stop spinning. It isn't. The sun will rise tomorrow. And this is where you have to put one foot in front of the other. This is a moment for you to either rise to the, the occasion or crumble under the stress of it. And we are all going to have those days when we crumble. It's, it's going to be inevitable, but it's how we manage that. But it's also other people recognizing that we're having that day and being able to reach out and say, hey, you know, let's take a pause here. Like, we just need to be more patient and generous than ever before. And, you know, I, I would say I'm just seeing that play out. You can, you can tell in your interactions with people in your community or whatever, people are raw right now. People's emotions are raw. And, and it's, that is a little, it's tenuous. That's going to be a hard hard thing to move through week to week.
0: The value of things. You, you mentioned that with the economy, what, what, what is stuff?
1: What is stuff?
0: You know, what is, what is stuff? We accumulate it and uh, we don't really need it. And we're going to end up in some sort of Buddhist conversation. But uh, (laughs) if only my cats would understand, we've accustomed them to a level of toys and treats and they really don't know what's happening. So it'll be a shock for them, but they'll get through it. I do, you know, we're, I, I've taken way too much of your time as it is. You and I, we could talk forever. And hopefully as this thing progresses, I'd love to have you back. Those big things, shelter the future, so much more to talk about. But you've been with Best Friends for a long time. What year?
1: Uh, I started volunteering in 1994. You were like three. I was four. Yeah. No, just <laughs> <laughs> I
0: it was fif- 15? Fifteen depends if you if I have a hat on hiding <coughs> the grays. I still have a very young face. Uh, but yeah, 1994, best friends back then. If anybody's been to the sanctuary, you've seen it. It is this beautiful place that has world class facilities. You know, just the types of things that represent the best of everything. You talk about shelter of the future. This is what it should look like, right? What did it look like in 1994?
1: Oh, it was just this dumpy POS. I mean, it was, it was like bailing wire and rough two by fours. Like it was literally, I, I would show up to work every day. And I had no job description. There was no HR department that nobody followed labor laws. Like we were working six and a half days a week. You'd show up and you'd be given stuff you had no idea what you were doing. Like, hi, Julie, uh, we need you to go and install the sprinkler system. Okay, I guess I'll figure it out. I'll go down to the local hardware store and ask the guy there how to install a sprinkler system. Or, hey, Julie, we've got some people showing up on a tour. Will you you give them a, a tour in the old beat up Toyota? And of course that would break down on the tour and you're in the middle of nowhere and you're having to lead these people through a hike. That's like three miles. So you just kind of had to figure it out as you went along. And I think that spirit of just doing whatever it took to get through to that next, next day. And we were definitely hand to mouth. So in some ways there is a parallel path there. Like we were one tick away from going under for years, years and years. And if you weren't doing something at the sanctuary, you were sitting in front of a a grocery store all day asking for money, which might sound easy. But when you start at six in the morning and you finish at like 730 at night, it is really hard. It was a we had nothing and we had to make something from it.
0: That was a setup there. I had an idea of what you'd say. And that is now for me to make a point about however you want to say it. Uh, You know, coming full circle, we, all of us, not just best friends, the world, we are going to find ourselves in this position that is going to be reminiscent of days when we had to be scrappy. Uh, It doesn't matter who you are. Again, we're going to need to be scrappy and need to fight like we did when we were starting up. And like you mentioned, it's the human spirit. So, how do we respond to that? That I think is what will make the difference. Not just surviving, but thriving.
1: I, it, it's a fascinating comment that you've just made about coming full circle. I think that's incredibly astute. And I've never really thought about it that way, John. But it's, you know, in a, in a, I guess in a weird way we have. And I was sort of musing on this whole thing, as I'm sure everyone has. Like, what does this mean? And is this really happening? And I think every day you wake up and say, what is, you know, is this really, really happening to us? And I think about my generation. So I'm a Generation X, Gen Xer, and the Millennials, and the Zs. And I'm telling you, you know, when you talk about the stuff that we have, and the way that we've grown up, and the society we've grown up in, we've had to face some difficult things for sure both personally and as a country or different states we've been in tragedies few wars you know some of it's been heart-wrenching but man we have never ever faced anything like this and i think it is going to be it's going to really define our metal like we're going to have to find that metal our generations It is up to us. It's not the boomers. It's not, you know, it's not the greatest generation. It is us. It's down to the Xers and the millennials. Like we are being basically forced to figure it out. And that is a really interesting concept. And I think it's going to be very cool in a way and very exciting to see how that all evolves because we are going to be tested to our limit for sure.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about this, actually. It's going to sound like I'm some sort of visionary, but I was thinking about this. I don't remember. I feel like a couple of years ago that I was watching a documentary about the greatest generation and how much that defined. I mean, it was my grandmother. I was born and raised in England. You know, my grandmother ended up uh, her factory. They had to make bullets. You know, they all went through this super defining thing. And I started to think, what is ours? But, you know, this idea that millennials, all you know, avocado toast, like you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, like whatever their trials and tribulations. But I did start to think, what is that thing that we're going to go through? I think every generation on some level has it. And uh, I don't think anybody guessed it would be this.
1: I don't think anybody guessed it would be this. I mean, I mean, some people guessed Bill Gates guessed, you know, there were people that were way ahead of this. And I think it just seems so incredulous that, um, but I also think it shows how incredibly fragile we are as a species. That I, this is the thing about our generation, Gen Xers, millennials, Ys, Zs. I think we feel like because of the way we've grown up, that the human race our species is top of the food chain. You know, There's sort of this invincibility to our generations, I think, that we've made up in our heads. And suddenly that's being brought up very, very short right now. And I think in a weird way, um, we're probably all having our own existential crisis about what does this mean? And uh, boy, we are a really vulnerable species. We are. And I think it's uh, really probably sent a lot of people into some soul searching during this period. Yeah,
0: my wife and I, we oscillate, I imagine like others, between where would we go if this all truly kicked off to the end of the world? Again, not that it's going to be, but do we have enough beans? Um, Where would we drive to, to... Uh, trying to have those moments away from our phones, just, and you kind of get lost. Sometimes you forget about it and then you remember it. And it's like, just, it's beyond belief, beyond belief, but we are in it together. And I think that is really, that's the defining moment. Not that it's a pandemic. Our defining moment, I think, generationally for us is us as a community, whether it's my neighbor next door or us at large, our city, our county, our state, forgetting all the things, forgetting all the things that we, or on a day to day, I hate you, or you're not my kind, or whatever that may be. We're all just people. And this thing hits us, whether it doesn't matter what color you are, where you live, country, we're all just people. and And I think everybody in animal welfare gets that because we are... Kind and we see, I think, compassion and we have empathy on a a level that others don't. But we ultimately all are people. And whether it's a month, six months, a year, five years, we will get to that point, I think, and I hope that this really does change us.
1: Yeah, I, I do. Like I said, in the very beginning, maybe before you were recording this, but this is a huge reset button for all of us, not just the planet, but our our humankind, our species, the way we do things, the way we think about each other, the way we think about stuff. And John, I think you just very beautifully articulated in in an incredibly astute way, I think what's happening in every community right now. And I think about the community that Best Friends is in. And it potentially, I say this and it sounds insane, but it is one of the most diverse communities I've ever experienced, meaning that not diversity in terms of you know race or anything like that, but diversity in points of view. And you have people that work for Best Friends. You have people that work for the BLM. You have people that work for the national parks. You've got river runners. You've got heavy influence from the Mormon church. You know, it's this very diverse, politically, socially um, divided community. And this may be the thing that brings it together. Because before all this happened, there was a giant war going on locally in Kanab over the Southern Red Sands mine, which was incredibly scary. It was a sand fracking mine. And was, uh, you know, the hydrology reports indicated that it was going to destroy the aquifer, not just the aquifer that Best Friends sits on, but the aquifer that feeds the water to the community. And the fact that that had become a political debate was kind of mind-blowing. And the vitriol locally was insane. And guess what? That was a month and a half ago. It is gone it's gone. You just, you aren't seeing the level of vitriol in this community. I think people are starting to wake up to the same notion that it's all about building that community. That's what's going to get us through.
0: Oh, you're giving me chills. Yeah. We got so philosophical. Julie. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Look at us solving all the world's problems is Bill Gates. Somebody give him a call. We've got it covered. <laughs> <laughs> if people are still listening, uh, let's give them from you two things. One, I want to know your number one. I know you set out and take, go for a walk, but I want to know one tip, self-care tip from you. And number two, I want to know a leadership tip and not just for CEOs or executive directors, but anyone who manages people, it, it doesn't matter. We interface with people and leadership is in so many different forms, right? So I wanna hear your top kind of self-care tip and your top leadership tip.
1: Okay, so the top self-care tip is ditch the yoga pants. Like you've gotta get into a routine. That means you get up at the same time every morning, you take a shower, you dress like you're gonna go to an office because the yoga pants are the first sign that your life is basically going to hell in a handbag. Um, are you gonna edit that out?
0: No, I feel like <laughs> no. I feel like you're coming to me really personally right now.
1: Oh, no. I can't see what pats you're wearing. I have a hat on, I just and I haven't
0: shaved and I haven't had a haircut, which isn't my fault to be fair.
1: But right, listen, I think we've all gone through our yoga pat moment, but I it does change your whole mindset to get into that daily routine. So I, I would say that's the best self-care tip from me. The leadership tip is, listen, you need to get in your rank and file and you need to do their job. You need to go and volunteer in the rank and file. You need to experience what they experience on a daily basis. You need to do it without a lot of regalia and fanfare. Show up in your grubbies, be willing to do the work, and see what they're seeing because it will open your minds in ways that you never expected. And it just is going to help you become a way better leader if you understand your staff's point of view at that level. And it is worth every minute, every canceled meeting, every appointment that you push off to make that happen. It is so important.
0: I'm already looking forward to having you on again as we go through this journey. I think you are just such a, an important voice and and you're helping to guide this whole thing. So thanks for taking the time and go back to work.
1: I will. I'm going to go. I'm going to go walk. I'm going on a walk. Sunset. I can see the sun setting. I can see the red cliffs. I'm not going to miss that one.
0: I'd like to thank the producers of the show, Tony Hammond, Amy Charlton, and Mark Peralta. As we navigate through this COVID-19 world, we've got a lot of great things happening at Best Friends. Resources, town halls, for our network partners, we have a Facebook group that's generating a lot of awesome conversation. Would love to see you there. All of that information at bestfriends.org slash podcast. You can send us an email here, podcast at bestfriends.org, an idea, a guest, or if quarantine life has you feeling a little lonely, email, say hi, send us a photo of your pets. But be warned, I am going to send you photos of my cats in return. That's podcast at bestfriends.org. Please take care of yourselves and each other and be safe. I'm John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.